This morning, as we hear your word, that you'll open our hearts, that we will hear your voice, we will hear your call, and we will respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Thank you so much. Amen. Just a brief report. You you know what? I can also be spontaneous. Look at that. That was very spontaneous, right? Yeah. You need to twist Patty's arm. She's the one that's more concerned about going to Turkey. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Now, we've been to Turkey once before in 2003, but I didn't know you then, so we'll have to do it another time. I want to just share a little bit this morning. It's Father's Day, and I've been doing a series on the book of Revelation, and I was studying in the book of Revelation. I went, no, I don't think this is the appropriate message for uh, Father's Day. So I'm going to shift, and we'll come back to Revelation here next Sunday. Um, I want, to, I want to especially speak to the men in our church this morning. Though, ladies, this, this is equally applicable to you. It's applicable to young people. And I think when I share today, I think you'll get some insight, maybe ladies, of your, your husband, your father, your son, get an understanding. How many know that a lot of men are married to some very gifted, intelligent women? Sometimes it's intimidating. Did you, I don't know if you know that. And I don't think most women understand the kind of power that they weld with their husband. And, uh, and so it's so important as, as ladies that you work at encouraging and building this person up. Because a lot of times, not meaning to demean or to be critical or anything, a lot of guys suffer with issues of insecurity. And it's really prevalent when they're in their own marriage relationships. And I'll give you an example. William Booth... Uh, Some of you might know who he is. He's the founder of the Salvation Army. He spent 10 years trying to figure out what to do. His wife, Catherine, was such an intelligent lady. She probably was smarter than he was. She was by far a better communicator. She spoke uh, around, you know, England. And so they happened to be doing some meetings. She was doing the meetings. She was the Bible teacher. And so William was walking around. He had been kind of in a funk for about 10 years trying to figure out what to do. And so he shared one night after coming back, she had done the Bible study. And, and so he was kind of walking through the east side of London. And uh, he said every fifth building was a pub. Most had steps to the counter so little children could climb up and order gin, you know. That was the time in that world that, you know, they didn't have the kind of restrictions we have today. And so... He said, you know, to Catherine, he said, I seem to hear a voice within me saying, where can you go and find such heathens as these? Where there is such a great need for your labors. He said, tonight I found my calling, my destiny. And as we know, that's the roots of the Salvation Army. And so William Booth uh, responded to that call. So I want to raise the question this morning You know, what does it really mean to be a man? What's the true measure of manhood? And I think the perfect image of manhood found in the Bible is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I could even argue this is the perfect picture of personhood. You don't just have to be a man. But I mean, for men, if you want to know what a man is like, study the life of Jesus. Obviously, he is our model. And uh, what a beautiful model he is. And we discover from Mark's gospel that Jesus 
it says, came to serve and not to be served. And so right away I could write a little note to myself. If I'm going to truly be a man after the image of God, if I'm going to you know, fulfill my destiny as a man, I will be a servant. Just as Jesus was a servant. And then we notice that this issue that uh, I think, it doesn't matter what our gender is, that we need to answer is, If we are a servant, who are we serving? And then why are we serving? So in other words, you know, we obviously have to serve other people, but am I really the servant of people or or am I a servant of God? I think a lot of us try to please the people around us because I think we gain our sense of identity and image from how people respond to us. And yet, you know, if we serve God, sometimes people will not always be happy with us. Because we're pleasing God, but it may not always be pleasing to other people. We may say things that God wants us to say that other people don't want to hear. And that can cause a little bit of chagrin or difficulty in relationships. So the, really, the real issue, I think, in all of our lives is who am I trying to please? Am I trying to live for myself and please myself? Or am I living for God and trying to please Him? And over the years, I've discovered that serving God for a lot of men is a major issue. They just kind of default the spiritual things to their spouses. Isn't that true? You know, it's just almost like the women rise up and they take on this responsibility, this, you know, to do the spiritual things in the house. And the guy takes on the physical, you know, some of the other aspects of life. And yet I think that's an abdication of our responsibility, men, as to what God has really called us to be. We really need to develop in our own lives. We need to get past ourselves. We need to get past this levels of insecurity. And so this morning, I want to talk about a man who really struggled with some issues. That's going to surprise you. This man, I would consider a world-class leader. And yet when we, we really explore the inner world of Moses, we're going to find out Moses was a very complex person. And so that's why I've entitled this sermon, The Moses Complex. And we find a little glimpse of all of this stuff in Moses' inner being in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, where God reveals himself to Moses, speaks into his life, and reissues a call to him. I I don't think this was the first time God had been working in Moses, but this was obviously the supreme call of Moses' life. So let's turn to... Uh, Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to read through into chapter 4. So you want to have your Bibles. I don't have them on the PowerPoint. I want you to look at it in your own text. Now, uh, I think that one of the reasons we make a mistake in understanding the nature and calling of being a man, or possibly we're struggling with deep internal issues, is it, it's, it's like most biblical characters, you'll find that they had these issues. How many know that in the Bible, there's only one protagonist? There's only one hero, and that's God himself. All the rest of us, as human beings, we have some upsides and we have some downsides. And we can learn from one another's uh, successes, but also from our failures. Now, you have to remember that Moses, around 40 years old, and if you do anything on the life cycle of an adult life, at 40, something's beginning to happen. And, you know, psychologists call this a what? A midlife crisis. And so what's happening is it's a reevaluation of our lives. And so Moses now, he's a prince. He's actually Hebrew born. We're going to pick up what happened, how he got to the stage where he was, you know, racially, he was part of the oppressed, but socially, he was a part of the oppressors. He was raised in the 
pharaoh or the king's palace, the king's court. He was trained to be a leader. And yet at 40 years old, I believe Moses had an identity crisis. Who am I? And the reason why he had an identity crisis is because he's a leader, an Egyptian leader, but he sees his racial group of people being oppressed by the people he's serving um, as a leader. And so Moses sees the situation, and there's something inside of Moses that feels like God is stirring in his heart that he needs to do something about the situation. And one day, he sees a taskmaster beating up on a slave. Moses intervenes. There was a tussle. Moses kills the Egyptian. And that creates a new crisis in Moses' life. He has to flee for his life. And he runs off into the wilderness where now Moses is going to spend the next 40 years of his life. And, you know, it it, it really does look like... uh, you know, it's wasted potential. You know, Moses has got all this training. He's a man that's been trained in the best schools of his time. He's been trained to govern and lead armies, and now he's leading sheep. How many go? He's probably being underutilized. We'd probably write down in his, you know, his resume, I'm being underutilized. I'm not experiencing my full potential. And so God often uses those, those things in our lives, our brokenness, our times of obscurity, to fashion some certain elements into our character. And so uh, one of the reasons why God takes us into the wilderness is to refine our lives. And it's interesting, before God generally really uses someone's life, he allows them a season in the wilderness. And if you study the Bible, you'll see, you know, Elijah was a man of the wilderness and uh, John the Baptist was a man of the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. So he was a slow learner. You know, it took him a while to get it, but, you know, I'm just being facetious there. You know, God just allows us to experience the wildernesses of our lives. And, you know, you say, what is a wilderness? A wilderness is a time when there's not a lot sustaining you, there's not a lot, you know, validating your life. It's just a barren place. It's a difficult spot. You know, it seems like when you're in a wilderness experience that God's not around. You know, you're praying, but it doesn't seem God's responding to your prayers. You know, when you're a brand new Christian, it's really great. You pray, God answers prayer all the time. You know, how many kind of noticed that? You start out as a Christian, you pray, boom, the answer. You pray, boom, there's the answer. But then you kind of come along one day and you pray and nothing. Where's the answer, God? We're like, where did God go? And then all of a sudden there's a delayed answer. And so God now is moving you from a state of immaturity to a state of maturity. You know, and God is trying to teach you. It's not just about, you know, you telling God what you need and want and all the rest of it. It's a state of learning how to know who God is, discover his character, embrace his value structure so that you start understanding what you need to do. How many know that when you start with a little child, you tell them what to do? A lot, right? You tell them what to do. But eventually as they mature, you don't keep telling them the same things. Hopefully you don't have to keep telling them the same things. Sometimes you say, I'm still telling them the same things. But eventually they get it. And that's a sign that they are doing what? They're maturing. And that's what God's trying to do in our lives so that God doesn't have to tell you every single day, you know, get dressed, you know, do this, do that, do this, you know. Don't be like the horse and the mule that need bit and bridle to steer you. You know, in other words, we need to discover who God is and his ways and his values so that eventually you're so, you know, what I would say indoctrinated, you're so full of the word of God, you have such an understanding of who God is that you know what God wants. You know, you understand what you should be doing. You get into a situation, you go, I know exactly what I should do here. I know exactly what God would do in this situation. And you begin to do it. And that's important. Now, 
The wilderness is there to refine us. It's there to develop character in our life. And I love what Eugene Peterson states regarding his translation of Matthew's gospel. He says, don't look for shortcuts to God. In other words, you know, God is interested in developing us, but there's no shortcut to maturity. It takes time. The market, he said, is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way to God, to life, is vigorous and requires total attention. In other words, you know, this is not just part-time stuff. If you really want to develop as a believer, this is an everyday thing. You've got you to discipline yourself. And um, that's, that's why some people struggle. They have no self-discipline in their life. And God wants to help us with that. He wants us to discipline our lives so that we get to know who he is. We spend time with him. We make an effort. Okay, so if we're going to be used of God, how many here say, I really like God to use my life? Anybody any, any say, you know, God want God to use me? Anybody here want to be used by God? Sure. Yeah, of course. So here I'm going to give you two things that are required to really be used by God. And the first one is so obvious. We need to have an encounter. We need to experience God. We need to have a meeting with God. We need to, actually, I would argue that we should spend time with God on a daily basis. That's how we develop in this Christian life. So if we're going to be truly become what God desires us to become, we have to experience him, encounter him. Now, how many here, and you don't have to raise your hand, but you get a little frustrated because you find that you're not free to do what you know is the right thing to do. And you end up doing the things you know you shouldn't do. Anybody have that kind of a struggle? Well, the Bible talks about that in the book of Romans. Now, there's a great theological debate over chapter 7 of the book of Romans. And the question is, was this the Apostle Paul's experience before he was a Christian? Or was this Paul's experience after he was a Christian, but he was, or he's describing the Christian life that after I first become a Christian, I'm still hung up with all the issues that I had before I was a Christian, and I'm really not free yet. I haven't really come to that place of spiritual freedom. And you know, I'm not going to enter into that debate, but I am going to say this, and here's what he says. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I don't do it. But what I hate, I do. You know, so he's a little frustrated. He goes, you know, I don't really want to do this. I know this is wrong, but I find myself doing it. That person is not free. That person's in bondage. And then chapter 8, you know, we get to chapter 8, the beautiful chapter, where it talks about how to live a spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-empowered, non-condemning, free life. That's the life God's designed for us. He wants us to walk with him in freedom. So you have to ask yourself, where am I at in this journey? Now Moses, when he's wandering around the wilderness, has a lot of time to think about life. How many know that some of us in this room, we do very little thinking. We just fill ourselves full of activity. You know? And so eventually, for you and I to develop and mature, God goes, too much activity in your life. And if you and I don't impose some limitations and slow ourselves down and spend time with God, God will help you slow yourself down. Anybody have those experiences? All of a sudden, everything just kind of gets stopped on you, you know, and you can't do what you want to do. And so now God's got your attention. You're kind of in a wilderness experience. Now, now, God, want, now God can get through to you. So I, I feel like in North America, we have some challenges to really grow strong and spiritually. We have too many we have so many good things in life, it's keeping us from the best life. 
we have to purpose in our hearts to spend time with God. It's just the way it works. And if you don't do that, you'll always be superficial and, and shallow. And that's why a lot of people in North America are, I think, quite superficial and shallow. They don't spend time deepening. And so God, you know, he's so committed to our spiritual growth, he'll help you. And so he'll bring trials in your life. And you go, oh, I didn't like those things. But God's going, yeah, but I got your attention, don't I? And that's exactly what happens. Here in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus, we pick up a story. Moses is tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, who happened to be the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Now, they've done studies. This happens in the desert. Bushes will just... Ignite. They get so dry and they catch fire. And they burn out. But you know what? This bush was doing something rather unusual. Because Moses goes on to say, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. In other words, it just stayed aglow. So Moses is attracted to something that's happening that's not natural. He's being attracted here to this supernatural situation. And I just wrote in my notes, God has a way of getting our attention. Everybody know that's true? He's going to design a, a means to attract us. Now, for most of us, it's not a burning bush. You know, it's the trials and pressures of life that usually drive us to him. Peter calls them fiery trials. When he gets to the bush, the bush starts talking. How many know that's a freaky experience? You know, not only is the bush not being consumed, the bush starts talking. Wow. But this is, you know, but Moses now recognized this is the voice of God. God is speaking to him. And, uh, and so in this dialogue, we get some incredible insight into what's going on inside of Moses. He's got some issues that God wants to deal with. And so there's a deep sense of failure inside of Moses. You know, I'm going to say this for a lot of people in this room. Some of you have had some deep sense of failure in your life. And you're struggling with that. And so it keeps you from advancing. It keeps you from trying. It keeps you from going for it, you know. And I want to just encourage you today that God likes to take our past defeats and move us past them. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the successful people in life have experienced lots of defeats. You know, the people who are never def- never experienced uh, what I call unsuc- non-successful situations are people who aren't doing anything. You're going to fail. Failure is a part of life. This is a culture today that's afraid to fail. Come on now. We have so many success seminars. Nobody wants to fail, but the key to a successful life is a life built with measures of failure in it. And that's how you learn from those experiences. Now, I don't want to fail at everything, but, you know, you are going to fail at times. So Moses is over there, and, uh, you know, I, I, I look at, there's, there's people here today that you say, well, I've tried, but I've just failed. Maybe you're here today and you feel trapped. Maybe you feel trapped in your job, or maybe you feel trapped in your marriage. You feel that you're just existing. You feel like you're slowly dying on the inside. And that maybe that's where you're at. How many have ever wondered, you know, how could a person who just seemed to be going right along, doing so good, all of a sudden go off the face of the map? They do something really stupid. They go sideways. Anybody ever wondered about that? That's because they have some things going on on the inside that are not being addressed. They're not addressing these issues. So, 
But God is trying to get our attention. He wants us to hear his voice. He has something in mind for us. And I'm going to say this, not just in an objective way, but I'm going to say it in a very specific way. God wants to say something to you today. You need to hear this. God has something in mind for you. Can you personalize that and say it to yourself? God has something in mind for me. I want you to just say that to yourself. God has something in mind for me. He knows my address. He knows what's going on in my life. He has something in mind for me. He, he's a concerned about what's happening in your life. And when the Lord saw in verse 4 that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. I know that God is, you know, if, if God knows Moses' name, don't you think he knows your name? He knows all of our names. That's the amazing thing. And so he's moving towards God. He's making himself available. I want to just say this. When you and I move towards God, we make ourselves available. I think things are going to start happen, happening in our lives. So we have to put ourselves in a place where God can speak to us personally. See, you've done that. Even just by coming to church this morning, you have put yourself in a place where God can speak to you. Now, if you get up tomorrow and you read your Bible and spend time, you know, praying and all the rest of it, you're putting yourself in a place where God can speak to you. We need to spend time. We need to hear his voice. God knew Moses by name. He knows, like Moses, he knows our situation. He knows our struggles. He knows about our wilderness experience. He knows our questions. There's something powerful and exciting about God's timing. This is a personal call to Moses. I love that. Moses now is moving towards God, but something happens. Notice what it says in verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You know, what we need to learn is we cannot come to God strictly on our terms. We have to come to God on his terms. Can I just say this? This may be one of the biggest paradigm shifts in your Christian experience. Listen to what I'm going to say to you. A lot of Christians, you know, want God on their terms. There's a lot of people that want God on their terms. In other words, I have an agenda. I want God to do this for me. And I think God should do this, and this is how my life should be, and this is how it should turn out. And a lot of people become disillusioned with God, and what it is is because they have a wrong understanding of what God has in mind. Because if you're disillusioned this morning, it means that you've had an illusion that's now been broken. And so what God is trying to do is move you from being on your agenda to get on His agenda. And the moment you and I say, okay, God, it's not about what I want. It's about what you have in mind. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you that from the time you were conceived, God had a purpose for you. And the moment you and I get into God's game plan for our lives, boom, things start happening in a totally new way. When you and I, when it doesn't become about us anymore, just say, hey, Lord, whatever you want to do, let's do it. And all of a sudden, everything starts changing. Prayers are answered like crazy. Things are moving in a direction because God now has a purpose and he has an interest in accomplishing all the things that he's moving you towards. That is extremely powerful. That's the paradigm we have to shift towards. Now he says here, take off your sandals. It's a holy place. It says to me, we have to come to God in humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then God doesn't wait to use our lives until we have arrived and have it all together. I like that. Part of the growing experience with God is that he walks with us and then he works through us. 
God takes us where we're at right now and starts working with us. Now, how many of you probably wouldn't call a guy like Samson to be your main person to do a major job for you? You know who Samson is? He's the guy that has some, you know, sexuality issues. He, he's just, you know, he's, he's not chaste. He's, he's, you know, constantly into trouble, you know, right? He's dating the wrong girl. He's, you know, he's trying to get married to a Philistine girl. God uses it, you know, to have him fight against the Philistines, you know. And yet, isn't it interesting? Why did God call Samson? You know, I think God desired to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines through the life of Samson. But he also wanted to deliver Samson from his own sinful way of life. So God had a twofold purpose going on. It wasn't just, Samson, I need you to do this for me. God says, no, I, wanna, I want you to do that. But while you're doing that, I want to do this in your life. And so God wants to do this amazing work inside of our lives. So then I need to requalify my next remark. You know, God desires to use godly people. God wants to refine us. He wants to develop character. But you know what's interesting? If somebody honors God, even though, you know, their lives aren't right, God's going to use them. That's a scary thought, isn't it? You know, and so God can use some pretty messed up people to accomplish his purposes. How many know that's true? He can even use ungodly people to accomplish his purposes. But before you get too puffed up and say, hey, look what God's doing with my life, just remember there was a guy named Balaam and he had a donkey. And God used the donkey. So, you know, don't get too high up there and go, look what God's doing in my life, you know. Yeah, well, Balaam's donkey was talking to him. That's pretty good. The donkey could have said, hey, listen, look at me, man. I'm talking now. <laughs> right? So what God desires to do is to set each of us free from sin. That's his desire. What I notice that people who are struggling with sin issues are rarely satisfied or content. They're always, they're always, there's always this frustration going on. There's no peace in their life. There's no sense of joy. You cannot be sinning and experience peace. It just doesn't work that way. So God's challenging Moses here. Is he's about to engage in ministry. He says, take off your shoes, I'm a holy God. And Peter tells us in his epistle, he says, listen, be holy because I'm holy. But holy doesn't just mean that I'm not sinning. It means more than that. You know what holiness really means? Holiness means to be set apart to do God's purposes. And when you and I become holy, what we're really doing is surrendering to God's purpose for our lives. That's true holiness. How many say, I want to be holy? Well, you are when you give your life to Christ. And you've now given your life. Not, you know, some people think, well, I'm giving my life to Christ so I don't have to go to hell. Or I'm giving my life to Christ. You know, that's how we think. I'm giving my life to Christ so I can get something out of God. No, holiness means I'm giving my life to Christ so that God's purposes can be done in my life. That's powerful. And that's what true holiness is. And ver- then we read here, God starts revealing his purpose to Moses in chapter 7. How many would like to say, you know, I'd like to know God so good that God could say to me, this is my purpose, and here's what, how I want you to fit in. Isn't that great? How many think it'd be kind of awesome to really tap into God and go, oh, man, this is so neat, God. You're talking to me, and I'm talking to you, and God says, and here's what I'm showing you, and here's how you're going to fit into my next, my next phase. Why? This is what's happening with Moses. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people Egypt. Sometimes we wonder, God, are you noticing what's going on in our world today? Do you see all the problems we got here? God goes, I'm paying attention. I'm far more concerned about the suffering on this planet than anybody in this room. 
I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. And by the way, God has a plan. It just takes longer than we'd like it to take, you know. So what did he do? He had to raise up a baby by the name of Moses. Moses was part of God's plan to deliver his people out of Egypt. It was an 80-year plan. Boy, for most of us in this generation, that's too long, Pastor. God's got to get his act together. He's got to speed things up, right? You know, he says, So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a land that's flowing, that's good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. <clears throat> Some might wonder, you know, boy, this has taken a long time. So I raise the question, you know, why does God take so long to deal with injustice? I'm so glad you asked that question. It's a good question, right? Come on, now you'd say, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be right involved right now. We've got to just do this right now. But you know what God's interested in? Not just the Israelites. He's interested in the Egyptians. God is also interested in the Canaanites. Because you know what happens when you keep reading the story? Eventually, God's going to take the people of Israel out of Egypt and put them where? In Canaan. And he's giving these seven nations time to get their act together. And God actually delays for such a long time that they eventually have 430 years to repent. How many say God's pretty long-suffering? God's pretty patient with our bad behavior on the planet. You know, left up to us, I think we would have fried the Canaanites a long time before God did, you know? We're pretty impatient with other people. I mean, we might be a little more patient with ourselves when we sin, but when somebody else sins against us, we're far more impatient about that. Come on now. It's the truth. So, he's, you know, I just say we're an impatient people. God's trying to give them opportunity to repent and turn from their evil ways. Now, all of these events are a part of God's plan. Now, how many know God works primarily through people? Everybody know that? That's the way God works. And so when God wants to do something, he raises up a person. But here's the neat part. Even though we make choices on this planet, listen to me carefully now. God had a plan before you were even born and you were in the plan. How many sets impressive? Before you were born, you were in the plan. Moses was in God's plan before he was born. God was choosing him before he was born. And look at all that he orchestrated to make it happen. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 23, by faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they put him in a little basket and sent him down the crocodile-infested Nile. But no crocodile got Moses because God was watching over him. And that little basket floated, and I think it was guided by Miriam and pushed over towards the princess. She's going out to take her bath. This little baby basket is moving that way, and the cry of that infant, and she opens the basket, and she sees it's a Hebrew child, and immediately her heart was filled with compassion. She was able to resist the edict of her father, who wanted all male children killed. But she could not drown that child. She was moved with compassion. Who put the compassion inside of her heart? God did. And she raised that child as if he were her son. Who's doing this stuff? 
God is. And why did God do that? So that he could be raised in the court of the palace. So that he could be spared. But not only that, he could learn things like leadership. How many actually think that God did this on purpose so that eventually when Moses was leading the people of Israel, he would know what to do as a leader? It was all planned by God. Wow. is that neat? Listen to what Jeremiah says. The word of the Lord came to me saying... Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet for the nations. Now that's true of Jeremiah, but that was also true. Paul says about himself, that was true of himself. But I'm going to make an argument It's true of every person in this room. God had something in mind when you were born. God has a purpose for every life. So, Often we, we look at our life strictly from an earthly vantage. But, you know, think about it now. God chose the time you were to be born, the home you were to be born into, the country, the teachers, the community that you were to be served in. Everything that you have, God has developed for you. He's created this context in which you were born in. Why? And I'm not negating the fact that God, you know, doesn't allow us to make choices in life, but I'm going to make this argument. Why were you so blessed? To be raised in a country with such great freedoms or to be brought to this country and experience these freedoms. Why have you been so blessed to have so much more than most people on the planet? Why? We just say, I'm just lucky, I guess. No, it's not the reason. Listen to what it says in the scripture. To whom much is given, much is required. You and I have a greater responsibility because of what God's done for us. And we need to use that responsibility in a meaningful and purposeful way. We need to say, God, how can I use what you've given me to be a blessing to the people you're calling me to? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Okay. So here's Moses. God's talking to him, but Moses has got a failure mentality. We've been here before God, and I really messed up the first time. That's the end of it, right? So I think one of the great lessons of failure is that we learn who it is that actually gets things done. How many know Moses tried to deliver him when he was 40? He killed an Egyptian and had to run for his life. But God says, I'm bringing you back. We're going to do it my way. How many here said, I've done things my way? You've sang the Frank Sinatra song. I'll tell you something. That's bad news for you because it doesn't work, right? All we like sheep have gone our own way, right? We've all gone astray. But God has his way, and his way is the best way for what we need to do. So let me move on to the second thing that God requires, and that's simply to exercise our excuses. What I mean by exercise is be delivered from them. We need to get rid of the excuses in our lives. You know, why it can't be done. Because the first thing that God says is, Moses, and and Moses said to God, this is when God's talking, verse 11, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Why me? (laughs) Why are you picking on me? Why are you sending me, God? And that's a question we ask when God comes calling, right? Who am I? You got to be kidding, God. I'm 80 years old. I'm in retirement mode. What are you talking about? Hey, I'm out in the Phoenix sun right now enjoying retirement, right? He's in the desert. Getting really quiet in here. If you're going to be a snowbird, you better serve God in Phoenix. That's what I told the first crowd. Because there was a lot of them there, snowbirds. And I tell them, you better be serving God in Phoenix. Not just be down there, you know, putting your feet up and saying, hey, I'm in retirement. You know, Moses could have said, hey, I am the guy in the past. I've got a record. I'm a murderer. Who can use me? 
God says, I can. How many know Paul was a murderer? Moses is a murderer. How many know we've got to stop looking at our past and saying, I'm too bad, God can't use me. There's nobody too bad in this room God can't use. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad God's in the redemption business, that he can take us when we've broken our own lives and messed it up? He says, I can change that for you and redeem you and make you something very useful. God can take something that's useless and make something useful out of it. I love it. God's in the business. He's in the reclamation business. He's in the restoration business. Yeah. But Moses is struggling with his identity. Who am I, you know? How many know that often you have to have failure in order to succeed? Anybody heard of Babe Ruth? Anybody know who that is? How many like baseball? He was a great baseball player. Did you know that for every home run Babe Ruth hit, he struck out twice as many times? In other words, he had 714 home runs, but he struck out 1,330 times, which is almost a two-to-one ratio. I mean, I think that's interesting. So, you know, if you want to get, you got to get this all right in your mind. You know, you're not going to hit it out of the ballpark every time you get up to bat. You're just not going to do that. That doesn't work that way. Sometimes you're going to try things and say, God, I'm trying, and boy, it's not working. God goes, yeah, but you just learned something. That's not the way to do it, right? You know, think about Gideon. Here's another guy. You know, I love it. Angel shows up. He goes, you mighty man of valor. And where is he? He's hiding in a wine press. How many things are a little discrepancy? Does anybody get a sense of the irony in the Bible? You know? But how many know he became a mighty man of valor? Why? Because God called him out of fear into a position of faith. And then you think of King David. Nobody noticed him as a leader, right? As a matter of fact, when Saul came to anoint Jesse's sons, seven of them showed up. David was still taking care of the sheep. Even Jesse did not recognize his son as a leader. He was the youngest. And then Samuel shows up and he says... Oh, there's got to be the king right there. He's looking at the oldest born, and God says, Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What's God saying? He's saying, You don't even know what's on the inside of the person. That's what I'm interested in. I want somebody that has a heart after mine. I want somebody that's interested in doing my will. And that was the key in David's life, by the way. He wanted to do the will of God. If that's your heart, you've got a heart after God. Then God gives these reassuring words to Moses. I'll be with you. How many know that if God is with you, you're going you're to be okay. You're going to succeed. You know? This will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The answer to the challenges we're facing today is where our focus is. Are we looking to our own liabilities and weaknesses or are we looking to God? You know, I love what Paul says. In Romans chapter 8, he said, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the preposition, if, is a very important preposition. Because a lot of times we think we're, on, you know, we're saying God's on my side. You know what I think it's interesting? A lot of armies in the past thought God was on their side. You know, Germans thought God was on their side in World War II. So did the Americans. So did the Canadians. How many know God was probably on neither side? You know, same thing in the American Civil War. The South thought that God was on their side. So did the North. How many know God was not on either side? You know what the point is? We have to be on God's side. I love when Joshua came to the Lord. Remember that? He saw the angel of the Lord and he says, whose side are you on? He said, neither. I'm not on your side or their side. You got to get on my side. That's the point. And if we're on God's side, if God be for us, who can be against us? I love it. So what's the, what's the point? Get on God's side. 
you know, then Moses raises a new question, a new reason why he couldn't fulfill his call by saying, he said, who am I? Now he's saying, who are you? In other words, God, who are you? Right? Look at verse 14, 13. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites and they say, the God of your fathers has sent you to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I tell them? You know, how are they going to believe me? Who are you? And God says, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I know I love that name, I am. You know why? It's present. I am whatever you need. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Isn't that beautiful? Man, God is what we need. He's always what we need. Moses now is concerned about authority. Who's going to listen to me? What kind of authority do I have? Remember the challenge that was posted to him in the earlier chapter, chapter 2, verse 14? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as he killed the Egyptian? And so often the enemy of our souls comes to us and he challenges us and he says, by what authority are you doing these things? You know, who gave you the authority to say that you're forgiven? Well, God did. You know, who gave you the authority to speak about Christ? Christ did. We have only to look to the word of God to see that God has given us authority. So I have authority. How many know you have authority? If you're a child of God, God says, Jesus says, I have all authority and I'm giving you authority. Go in my name. That's authority. Wow. So I'm not going in my name. I'm going in his name. And you know what happens when you understand you have that authority? Demons will tremble. When you have that kind of authority, the powers of darkness are shaken. But most Christians go, I'm just a wimp. I'm going, really? Come on, you guys. You know, you're looking at yourself rather than the God who is the one that's called us. You know, oh, I love this. And then we have this, you know, what do we expect when we start moving? Opposition. You know, a lot of Christians go, you know, it can't be God's will. Now I'm running into opposition. I'm going, it must be God's will. You're going to have opposition. If you're doing something for God, you're going to have opposition. You know, you know the boat is moving by the waves it's creating. That's a little quote I read somewhere. I kind of like it. Are there any waves in your life? Well, pastor, there's no waves in my life. That's because there's no forward progress. You've got to create some waves, man. Or you're not going anywhere. Yeah. You know, I want this church to be a wave-breaking church. I want us to create waves. Right? Come on now. How many say, pastor, we want to get moving forward? We're going to create waves. We're going to have a measure of opposition. We shouldn't be surprised. We must be doing something. You know, when we have opposition, I go, I must be doing something right. You know, if there's no opposition, I go, are we doing anything? That's the question that comes to my mind. Are we doing anything? Now, having dealt with Moses' inferiority and significance and concern about authority, God has to address Moses' insecurities. Don't we have those? Chapter 4, verse 10. Moses says to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Hey, how many know? God's going to give you whatever it takes to get the job done. Stop looking at your weaknesses. Stop look, start looking at what God wants to do. Regardless of what God says, Moses refuses to do what God asks. And that's the one thing that keeps us from being used of God. Unwillingness. Do you know God only got upset with Moses when Moses finally said, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. Because verse 13, Moses says, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. How do you like that call? You know, God's calling. He goes, no, I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. Until this point, God's very patient with Moses. Right? Yeah. 
Well, that's another part. Okay, let me just close with this. Moses is basically saying, I just can't do it. I don't have what it takes to get the job done. And, you know, and up until this point, God's very patient with Moses, speaking to his insecurities, fears, inabilities. But when Moses states his unwillingness to do what God says, we have a very different response from God. Verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. He said, well, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and his... And, and, uh, Oops, skipped a page. Yeah. Well, you know, he knows that Aaron, Aaron is able to speak well. So he says, don't worry about it. It'd be nice to find this last page here. Oh, here it is. He says, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I'll help both of you speak and we'll teach you what to do. Even though God is angry with Moses, he still sends him help. Isn't that great? So God says, I'm not letting you off the hook. There's only one way that God can't work through our lives. And that's if we adamantly rebel against God. We just say, I won't do it. He can't work through our unwillingness. So I'm convinced these are the issues that we have to deal with in our lives, right? Right? Fears, insecurities, right? Inabilities. All of these things that are going on in the inside. Lord, I can't do this. What we need to say is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What is my purpose? And God will show us. You know what God said? I'll just close with this. He said, when Moses said, I can't do it, God says, what do you have in your hand? He goes, well, I have a staff. You know, it's shepherd's staff. He says, drop it. Drops the staff, what happens is it becomes a serpent. Moses gets afraid of the serpent. God says, no, grab it by the tail. When he did, it became a staff again. He says, that's all you need. You have what you need, it's in your hand. So what does the staff represent? It represents the word of God. See, when you and I have the word of God, we have all we need. Isn't that beautiful? It's that simple. So let's stand. Let's stand this morning. I'm going to speak specifically to the men, then I'll speak to the the ladies as well. But I'll just pick on the guys with every head bowed this morning. God is speaking to you today. God is speaking to you today. And you realize, you know what? I've allowed fear and insecurity. I've, I've looked at myself, Pastor. I haven't been looking to God. I've been looking to myself. And I realize, you know what? I don't think I'm fulfilling what God has in mind for my life. But you know what? Today, I want to just say one thing to God. I'm willing. And that's you. You want to fulfill God's purpose for your life. That's your cry. You say, I'm going to stop looking at myself. I'm going to start looking to what God has for me. Just raise your hand. That's you today. How many you want? You want God's purposes to be done through you. No more excuses. No more excuses. Okay, ladies, how about you? Same thing. Doesn't matter who we are. Just raise our hands to God. Just say, okay, Lord. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray a prayer that we're going to make waves. And why we're going to make waves is not because we're so great. It's not because we have an agenda. What we're asking for is God's agenda and God's purpose for each of our lives. When you and I fulfill our purpose, what starts happening is people around us start getting blessed. And everybody that does not fulfill their purpose, people suffer. And they're not influenced. And their lives are not blessed. Because somebody let them down. 
But when you and I say, Lord, I'm going to step up to the plate. I'm going to run the risk of being misunderstood. But I'm going to say, here, my Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to fulfill my purpose, why, why you designed me. You know, I want to see the power and the presence of God work in my life. You know, Moses' life was not necessarily easy. But how many know thousands, even millions of people's lives were forever changed. They were led out of slavery. Isn't that amazing? One person's obedience changed a nation. Do you know, when I look around our room, I think, wow, if, just, just think of all the people in this room. If we all just did God's purpose, don't you think we could actually change a nation? How many think that's possible? We could change Canada. How many think Canada probably needs to change right now? It's turned its back on Almighty God. It's going its own way, and the nation is beginning to suffer. A lot of our leaders are just following the voices of the common you know, value structure and system. Isn't that true? They're not real leaders. They're just followers. But they're following the wrong voices. To have courageous people to stand up and say, Here, my God, I want to be used of you. I want to fulfill my design and purpose. At this time, in this generation, I want to make a difference in my neighborhood. I want to make a difference where I work. I want to make a difference in my home. I want to make a difference in my city and community. I want to make a difference in this province. Yes, Lord, use me to make a difference in my nation. What a powerful thing that is. Isn't that powerful? And all you got to do, it's not, you know, we think, well, I got to do something big. No, just be obedient to the purpose that God's calling you to. You have no idea the ripple effect that's going to have on other people's lives. So let's pray today. Let's just lift our hands to God and say, Lord, here am I. So, Lord, our hands are lifted. We're saying, Lord, here am I. You have a purpose. Maybe this is a new juncture in our life. This is a moment of encounter. This is a place where I'm hearing your voice. This is a place where I'm giving space in my life and opportunity for you to work. I'm asking you to speak, Lord, and direct and guide. Help me to be on your page. Help me to make my life holy. In other words, set apart for your purpose. And Lord, I just pray that you'll use me. You'll use me to be a great blessing to those around me. Lord, help me to serve you by serving other people. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.